and welcome to episode nine of the Vera Shafiq podcast, real and relevant discussions on business, marketing, technology, and digital. I'm your host, Vera Shafiq, and I talk to people in business and marketing who care about doing marketing the right way and want to be proud of the work they do. It's Tuesday, March the 12th, 2019. Thanks for listening. Please review and subscribe, and I hope you enjoy the show. My guest today is Louis Grenier. He's content lead at Hotjar based out of Dublin, Ireland. He's also the host of the Everyone Hates Marketers podcast, which he's been doing for about two years and on which he's interviewed such prestigious marketing visionaries such as Seth Godin, Mark Ritson and Rand Fishkin. The mission statement for his podcast is to put an end to shady, aggressive marketing, and he's not afraid to call it out. I'm super excited to have Louis as a guest today. Bonjour et bienvenue, Louis. <laughs> bonjour, bonjour. <laughs> but, uh, as, as everyone says in every single podcast ever, uh, thanks for having me. Um, and yeah, it's, it's thanks for doing what you're doing as well. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. Um, and so the way I always start off my podcast, which is a typical way to start them off, is just would you mind spending a minute or two just to tell us about who you are, what your backstory is, and how you got to where you are right now? Yeah, as you said, I'm a marketer in a mission to, to fight bad marketing. Uh, I'm not trying to do that on my own, though. The, my way of doing it is by working for a company uh, that has kind of the same mission and to interview people who who believe in the same thing um i i didn't i didn't i wasn't born thinking i'll be a, a marketer um i always had this type of um you know belief or thinking that i i love understanding people i always try to understand what people were thinking i remember in school and when i was young i always had that in my head like trying to read people's mind in a sense so i didn't become a uh uh, a psyche, like someone who would uh, try to guess what people are thinking and become a, mar- a marketer instead. Um, and originally, I studied uh, mechanical engineering to become um, someone who would create companies to build wind turbines, right? Mm. Uh, and then and then I kind of switched to, to marketing after I realized what my strengths were and what I really loved doing, which was understanding people so well that you can basically give them what they want when they want it. Sure. And so how did you get your foot into the marketing profession? Is Hotjar where you started out or did you have some a different path? I didn't start at Hotjar. Uh, Hotjar is not my f- first job in marketing. So the way the way it happened was I in after my s- school of engineering that I didn't finish, I did one year of business school in France, and then I I moved on to do an internship abroad, like as it as it's required in business school, uh, and I landed in Dublin to work for a car manufacturer comp- uh, manufacturing company, and I worked there as a kind of a salesperson network. You know, I was in charge of managing the the network of dealerships they had, uh, which is something I, I really didn't like. Uh, I mean, I, I never really, never really cared about cars, uh, nor did I care about the company I was working for that much. And the only thing I wanted to get into was marketing uh, for the company. But they never really wanted me to do that because I never had a, a former diploma or former kind of degree in, in, in marketing. And I probably didn't do a good job at selling myself, to be honest. I was very immature and very, uh, uh, how do you say that? Um, some someone who who expect others to do something for them without mm-hmm. anything in return. Entitled. I was very entitled <laughs> as well. Sure. I felt very entitled. Um, so I 
in Dublin, I realized I had to do something if I really want to do marketing. So I did this quick diploma in digital marketing. It took me six to eight weeks to have a diploma to actually show in my CV. And that enabled me to work for a startup. I worked there like for a mobile marketing startup for two years. Then I left uh, with 20,000 euros in my savings to create my own company that failed two years after. Uh, I burned out basically after like just working on the wrong things and uh, and then I joined Hotjar, and I've been here. I've been there for two years now. Oh, great, great! So you, yeah, you had a kind of a varied entrance into marketing. Kind of reminds me a little bit about my own path. Um, but uh, okay, so and at Hotjar right now, um, tell us a little bit about what Hotjar does and how it can help marketers. Sure. So it, it helps you to improve the user experience uh, by giving answers uh, that traditional web analytics tool can't give you uh, and, and it's a user behavior and feedback uh, software right so it's really helping you to answer two key questions uh, what are people actually doing on your website and uh, what they think about it right and so does it offer i think it offers heat maps and things like that where you can actually visually see what people are doing and what journey they're taking on your website correct yeah, so that's the behavior side. Uh, as you said, we have session recordings, uh, heat maps, and funnel analysis. And then on the feedback side, we have a few tools that enable you to get in-the-moment feedback on your website. So you can ask questions to answers uh, that you want. You can have a sentiment uh, analysis. You know, you can have a, a little widget on your site that enables you to, to for, for visitors to leave, you know, their, their thoughts and ratings. So it's the, the two sides. It's user behavior and feedback. Right. And I think that's key to really what your mission is for your podcast, which is doing marketing, I guess, you know, doing marketing, not in a sleazy way, not in a shady way, but doing it where the customer is at the forefront of everything you do. So it really makes sense that what you do at what Hotjar offers is really looking into the customer's mind and understanding what the customer wants, uh, specifically on the website. So that's that's pretty awesome. Um, and I know your role at Hotjar is content lead. So what do you do? Uh, in that role? What are your key responsibilities? So the first thing to say is that our culture at Hodger is obviously very important. It, it's paramount to everything else. And we have a we have a very protective way to give titles, right? So we prefer mm -hmm. to take our time when it comes to titles. And so even though I have the title of content lead and others would be would have other titles, it doesn't necessarily reflect what one would do on a day to day basis. Now it's clear that my my uh, my uh, job title uh, refers to the content side of things so for that i am responsible to make sure that we produce content that helps people uh, to do what they want to do and move closer to hotjar whether it whether it's to discover to discover hotjar or to know how to use it but um i also i'm uh, looking into our positioning overall which is uh basically holding a specific place in people's mind, people's heart. And those two things anyway, as you said, and marketing in general anyway, is all about the people, you know, all about the market. So marketing, there is marketing there and marketers as well. The, the number one job for a marketer is to understand the market. And if you don't do that as a marketer, then what you mentioned uh, could happen. You can start using sleazy tactics uh, and taking shortcuts that are not necessarily very good for you or for your customers. Sure. And so when you're looking at, or I mean, since you work in this environment where 
people are able to see what people what, what their customers or prospects are doing on the website. Do you have any ideas to the most common mistakes that people are doing in their website design? Things that are causing friction or preventing users from finding what they're looking for on the website? So I I would I would answer there's a few things to to look into, but the main thing to really remember from this is I do not know your business. I do not know your website. So if you're listening to this right now, you might have an e-commerce site on Shopify. You might have a lead generation website. You might have, you know, you might have an information website. You might have 100,000 visits a day. You might have only 50. The point that I'm making is that I do not know your situation and your market is different than anyone else because you're unique. Your company is unique. So Apart, like instead of me telling you, you know, you need to remove the number of fields, you need to reduce the number of fields on your form and you need to simplify things or whatever. The best advice I can give you, which is the first principle of marketing, is to focus on truly understanding what people are actually doing on your website. You can use Hotjar, you can use other stuff. You don't need Hotjar. You can do just basic user testing by getting five people in a room, uh, showing them your website and let them, let them, uh, you know, discuss what they see and what they like, what they don't like, right? But, you know, best practices are only good for people who are trying to catch up. Uh, the companies who are leaving or are leading, leading the trail, leading the, the pack, don't really care about best practices. What they care about the most is focusing on their people, on their market. So I know it might be a, a disappointing answer, um, but it's the truth. Like, sure. I don't want to be prescriptive and saying that. Now, granted, there are some first principles that apply to website design. Now, I'm not a specialist of it, but a lot of things usually work. You know, social proof is one of them. That's based on the first principle of the fact that people do trust their peers, right? Mm -hmm. So if you show customers, case studies, testimonials, and proof that other people like you, like the product or service they see, then it's more likely that you'll get a good result. Again, um, loss aversion, uh, not loss aversion, but the, uh, the paradox of choice is another thing that is kind of proven scientifically. The fact that the more choice you show to people, the less likely they are to take a decision. So again, for your website, you might want to you know, reduce the number of, of options you give to people so that they don't feel overwhelmed. Now, all of those things are kind of first principles, uh, but you might be surprised uh, by multiple factors. You know, your website is very different than any others, and you might have different factors that play at the same time that kind of cancel each other out and whatnot, which is why I go back to the first thing, which is make sure that you really focus on the experience that people actually go through your website, and you will find those things to change to improve the experience. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's good advice, and it, it really does depend, as you said, on the business, so you cannot be prescriptive about it, and um, uh, yeah, but what I often see, and the, this is, I think, like you said, one of the basics is that a website, a homepage may may have just way too much information on it. A lot of times when you get to a homepage, you're kind of uh, overwhelmed with choices, don't really understand what the business does and how that business is going to help you. That's that's something that I see a lot still. And um, I think, as that's you mentioned, yeah, and as you mentioned, just cutting it down to the basics, especially on the homepage, I think uh, will help customers and prospects go through the journey a lot more smoothly. Uh, just give them what they need. Give them what they need. Don't make it hard for them to make a decision or, you know, make, do an action on, you know, on your website or homepage. 
So yeah, and, and if yeah. I might add to that, and sorry to cut you, but it's important. Sure. Like, again, that's an, another thing that works, right? Uh, and I'm not going to remember the research that has been done on this, but basically, what is simple is true for people. So the simpler something seems to be, the truer, like the truer it is for someone. And exactly what you said. You see tons and tons of websites, especially the, 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 the ones that are the most guilty of that are digital marketing agencies and marketing agencies. Mm-hmm. So they would use lingo that only them would understand by saying they are like pioneers in uh, innovation-driven designs and uh, you know they are uh, market leaders in uh, user experience design, all mm-hmm. of the stuff that no one really understands apart from them. And simplifying your message to the point that you basically mirror what people are saying, which is the key, right, in copywriting and in romance. If you use the words that your ideal customer use when they speak about you and your service, you literally cannot go wrong. But if you start to make up stuff because that's what you think you are, then you're going to fail. And the best copywriters in the world all say the same thing. They don't write copy. They steal it. They steal it from customers. They steal it from reviews online. They steal it from what people are actually saying. And yes, the, the simpler, the better. That's definitely a first principle that you can focus on as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I like that. Um, and sometimes, you know, we see marketers writing copy for not for the customer, but for their competitors or trying to impress people, you know, hey, we won all of these awards or we're, like you said, using all this jargon and they kind of, it kind of gets away from them as to who the actual consumer of their their content is. And that also goes to, you know, putting things about your business on your homepage Things like we've been we've been in business for thirty years. We've won all these awards. We're so great, you know. Talking about yourself as a company rather than explaining how you're going to help your prospect to you know live a better life or solve a problem. So I think you're right. I think that's that's the key fundamental part of where people are still getting it wrong. So yeah, it's, I, it's, and it's funny because uh, the mission of my podcast, you know, the Vera Shafiq podcast, is kind of very similar to yours in that. Uh, I'm trying to push for doing marketing the right way. So it's kind of similar to, you know, not doing it shady, not being sleazy, not being kind of out of left field. So that really resonates with me. Um, so, yeah, good points. So let's talk about your podcast. Uh, I, as I mentioned to you before, uh, I'm a, a big fan of it. And I've been listening to Everyone Hates Marketers since the beginning and I just love the way that you are so direct and to the point on your podcast and you just get down to business right away with your, your guests. And I think that's so refreshing. Um, what I really like about your podcast is that you grill your, your guests in a good way. Like you, you get them to explain everything in detail and you'll, you'll break everything down into steps for your listening audience so that they can actually go away with actionable insights or in actionable takeaways. Is this something that you consciously did at, from the beginning or is this something that you developed as a kind of technique as you went through your podcasting journey? Right. Uh, first, thanks very much for, for your kind words. I, I really, really appreciate it. And I will never get never get bored of listening to others saying that uh, they enjoy uh, the way I run interviews. Because originally, I never really thought of that this way. I never really thought that would be a competitive advantage or a, a unique signature per se, right? Mm-hmm. I, I guess 
I have a very contrarian personality. Um, yes. So I do enjoy I do enjoy to pick fights, and I always did when I was a young boy, uh, as much as I am now. So, you know, every time if someone says black, I would say white, just to to see their reaction. And, and so I always enjoyed trying to take a side or a stand that wasn't necessarily the the, the status quo. And it just, I don't know exactly where it's coming from, but that's part of my personality. So that's the one thing. The second thing is I also hate fluff in general in life as well. I, I just, I don't connect with people who just are, are full of it. I, I, I can't, I don't have time for mm-hmm. them. I never had. And I guess my, my thirst for trying to get to the bottom of things is something that I've always practiced when I'm like even talking to people, to my friends, to my family. I, I just I just don't like no like nonsense, and I never did. I don't exactly know where it's coming from. So when I started to interview uh, interview people, I just literally solved my own problem. I I, I literally want to know every time I interview someone how do they actually do it in detail, and I don't care about their fluff, their first fluffy answer. That's why I always dig deeper. It's like it's it's always trying to dig into the truth of it because you can feel that they have something they're not telling until you really challenge them and then they say you know the truth that's actually a uh, i learned after that it's a journalist type of uh, technique that journalists employ to make sure that they get good answers is they ask a question once they know that the first answer is is bs and then they ask the same question again and then usually that leads to the right answer so what I, I discovered that this approach was something that people liked after getting feedback from listeners. And then I decided to double down on it even more. So now that's why I'm doing, you know, I'm jumping in straight into the questions about how to do certain things because the listeners told me they like when I do that. I also keep repeating what people say in a summarized way so that they can um, they can just remind themselves that that's what the guest said, etc. So I double down on things that people like, but I... I just did that kind of unconsciously from the start. Right, right. Yeah, and and, and I really do like that. As I said, um, I come away from your podcast feeling like I've learned a lot and have really kind of gotten into the, the roots and the weeds of, of the subject matter. So I, I don't come away scratching my head wondering, you know, hey, you know, there was questions that were unanswered. So that's really great about your podcast. Um, and I hope to achieve something similar. <laughs> I'm just starting my podcasting journey, but I, I love it. I love your, your method. Do you have a favorite interview that you've done to date? Huh. Um, I guess the one that I'm the proudest of is we said got in. Yeah. Uh, and I know it sounds cliche and like people, uh, if you're listening to this podcast right now, you're like, oh yeah, of course you interviewed this guy. And, but I, I, it's not trying to, it's, it's because it really taught me a good lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, and the lesson is, is relevant for everyone out here, like listening. Uh, the, the reason why I was able to get him on the podcast is not because I, I, I went like he used a unique technique to get his attention. The reason why he was on the podcast is because he believed in the same thing I believed in. You know, people, yeah. people like us do things like us, right? Sure. And it's also because this, the podcast takes a stand against something. It's truly, you know, it, it, it takes a stand and it has a strong positioning, right? And so this is the lesson and this is why I picked this episode as the one I'm the proudest of. It's not of the episode itself, but the way I got it is because I know that I took a risk with this podcast. When I launched the name of it and the podcast itself, I was really scared. 
you know, I had butterfly mm-hmm. in my stomach. I was like, what are people going to say? You know, am I going to be literally insulted or are people going to ignore it? Uh, and so I almost didn't launch it because I was too scared almost. But that's the right way to do marketing. If you are not scared or if you don't have butterfly in your stomach when you launch something, then it's not risky enough and it's likely that no one will notice. And in this day and age, that's what happens. If you want to stand out, you must take a stand. If not, you're just going to be a generalist and generalists don't get paid a lot, don't get noticed a lot, and it's incredibly difficult to stand out. So that's why I picked this this episode because I, I think that anyone can talk to anyone they want to like any expert or book authors or people they admire, as long as they have something, they have a point of view, they have, they are taking a stand against something or, or for something else. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And, um, I didn't, uh, didn't Seth Godin say that your leading question was like one of the best questions he's ever had in a podcast? Yeah, he did. He said that, which was nice to hear. Right. Yeah. Um, cause I did, I did, but again, I, I guess we can talk about how awesome I am all day long if you want. <laughs> but I guess for 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 you listening to this podcast, the main thing to take away from that is you can do the same. The reason why I did that and the reason why Seth said that to me is because I listened to the feedback of my listeners. On the first three episodes, I actively looked at feedback and trying to get feedback from anyone listening. And a few people told me the same thing. They said, you know, I do enjoy specifically when you start diving into a specific method or step-by-step that people uh, distill in your interviews. And I would like if you could start with that instead of, you know, having to wait 30 minutes. Right. Yeah. So that's what I did. And so I'm not a genius who came up with those, this structure. I literally Mm -hmm. just listened to what people said at least the feedback that I cared about from the listeners, the type of listeners I wanted. And I just did that and I applied the same principle for Seth Godin. And this is again a lesson apart from the positioning is to have a feedback loop, you know, have something where you constantly are in check with your people and don't forget that like they know their stuff more than you do because you're too much in the weeds. You know, you can't see the, the label from inside the jar. Right. Yeah. Um, and so this is why he said that. It's not because I, I'm awesome and you're not. It's, anyone can do that just by listening to the feedback, doubling down on what works. That's, that's, that's where it's coming from. Yeah, sure. And yeah, definitely what you asked him, and I remember that podcast clearly, was if you had a limited budget as a market, I think it was like a thousand bucks, what would you, what would your strategy be for selling a certain product or something like that? And the conversation led really kind of directly into what Seth Godin's mission is in his This Is Marketing book, which is, you know, niche down on your audience segments and everyone is not your customer kind of thing and just just get very focused laser focused on on your niche niche audience is that correct yeah i asked him so if you had one thousand dollars uh six months and you had to generate like ten thousand dollars but you cannot use your name so you can use your expertise but you can't use your name to promote it how would you go about it right and so we started with this question and he basically came up with uh and i'm gonna if you give me one second actually go through it because I have it here in front of me. So what he said was basically, basically distilled down into five steps, right? Mm -hmm. Number one, you you need to market with people, not at them, 
right? Right. He said, and I'm quoting him, uh, we marketers are selfish, lying, short-term thinking scum. We believe that our job is to manipulate people as we market to them, right? Mm -hmm. So the the time of scammy in-your-face marketing is over. Uh, So that's the first thing. It's changing your mindset. Second point, you need to focus on the tiniest audience possible. That's exactly what you said. Third point, you need to create a remarkable product. And I know people, like, if you're listening to this, you might think, oh, yeah, duh. But it's part of the, the loop, right? You cannot, that's a strong belief of mine. And that's not only mine, it's, it's most marketers. You cannot do good marketing with a, with a shitty product. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. You need, as part of the loop, you need a good product. If you don't have a good product as a marketer, that's when you start using sleazy tactics because you have to lie. Um, so that's the third one. Fourth, is to create an abundance of confidence. So to literally give so much away that people trust you and are basically you know, willing to share their problems with you, invite you on podcasts and whatever. And that requires you to, to give people an abundance of confidence that will create an abundance of value and all you're asking in return is to be trusted. And number five is to make a spinner and spin the wheel. You can take months and years thinking about something. Oh, I wish I could do that. But very much like you did, Start something, you start a podcast and just go for it and then listen to feedback and improve as you go. But what matters really, and that's also something I've learned, is to focus on the process, not the outcome. And so for your podcast, for example, you're starting out, do not focus on, I want 100,000 listeners. No, focus on, I want to publish one episode episode a week for a year and just focus on the process. Because if you trust your process and listen to feedback and implement it, things will get better you will get discovered, more and more people will listen, and that's the flywheel right there. So, yeah, that's what he said in a, in a nutshell. Brilliant. That's brilliant. And uh, I really appreciate that advice uh, in terms of, you know, getting started with something and just not worrying about numbers and metrics. And I think that's really good advice for the listening audience, too. If, if there's anyone out there who's thinking of doing a podcast, either personal or, you know, for their company or even just um, content marketing or some kind of marketing initiative, it, it is a marathon and it's not a sprint. And I think that's something we just mm-hmm. got to keep keep in, in our minds at all times. Don't try and rush the process. Uh, understand that it's going to take a year to two years before, you know, the trust, which you mentioned, is is built up with the audience. And you do have to be very giving. It's all about giving and not expecting back in return. So I think that's great advice. It's awesome. And and the third point I can say on this, like apart from having a strong positioning, listening to feedback, uh, is, um, is to, to truly love. You need to, like you need to have a mission that you truly believe in or else it's going to get tough mm-hmm. when, you know, one day, one week, you don't feel like it. And you're like, ah, oh, I don't really want to do this episode. This is what's going to keep you going. Right. So making sure that you pick something that truly energizes you, that doesn't drain your energy, but really makes you like energetic at the end of it is key. So for me, I can speak to you for hours about this. I absolutely have no problem, right. Doing it. Mm-hmm. And at the end of our conversation, I'm going to feel more energized than I was at the start. But if you ask me to answer your questions over email on a writing medium, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to be drained. I'm not even going to finish it. Right. Sure. And that's who I am. So some people are very good at writing and maybe they hate speaking. So you need to also understand what you're very good at, what energizes you the most so that you can double down on it or else you're not going to be able to run this marathon. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Great advice. 
So talking about being energized, you know, you and I have similar missions in terms of, you know, doing marketing the right way. And you talked about how advertisers and marketers do have, you know, have, a, have gotten a bad name from the shady tactics that, that we see them use sometimes. You know, we see bad players, obviously, in all professions. But things like blasting intrusive and non-relevant ads, you know, doing a spray and pray kind of uh, strategy or just becoming lazy in, in, in your work and not, not really thinking about the long term. I think these are areas where uh, mar- marketing professionals can, can improve upon their work. And we've seen as a result of this, people have started using ad blockers, you know, privacy settings, not, not wanting to share their data because they don't trust marketers and advertisers anymore. Uh, so it's kind of like, I think we're at a tipping point right now where it's coming to fruition. People are understanding or marketers are understanding that they need to clean up their act. And I'm not talking about every marketer. This is like a small, you know, a small percentage. But um, what do you think, Louis, that marketers can do to start cleaning up their bad reputation in, in air quotes? Uh, I actually would disagree with you that you said it's a small portion. Uh-huh. Uh, I actually think I think most of us are doing it uh, somewhere or another. Uh, I guess uh, the, the one thing I would say, though, is that I don't blame you if you're doing it. I don't blame advertisers and marketers in general for, for, for doing it. Uh, and what I blame is a few things. So the two main things that I blame are, one, the pressure that the corporations are putting on marketers daily to reach goals that are crazy, yeah. you know, very, very difficult to, to sustain. So that's the main reason why marketers have to send those email blasts and have to have to create those ads because the pressure is immense. More than ever, the pressure is immense, right? Yeah. Especially if you have a bad product to sell, right? So that's the number one reason why people have to do that. And I don't blame them for that. You need to learn a living, you need to earn a living, and you don't necessarily always have a choice to work for an amazing company that has a massive, an, an amazing product. The second reason is due to the, you know, to internet coming on uh, uh, 20, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, I think, at this stage, um, is the fact that it adds a, 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 a brick wall between you and your customers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now, like 20, 30 years ago, when you started a business, uh, you had to kind of see people, you know, or even after that, uh, you have to, you know, you create a, a barbershop in town, you have people coming in, you know whether they're going to like your product or not, you can talk to them day to day, you build empathy this way. Nowadays, you can create a business online, never speak to any customer whatsoever, they just buy online. So this layer of empathy is gone. And I think this is the second reason why marketers and advertisers in general tend to use fleecy tactics, is they don't even realize that they are doing it and that it's bad, because they can't they can't, they, they don't know what people say, you know, they don't know what they mm. think in front of their screen. So when you put those two things together, I think it's the perfect storm. Uh, the perfect storm of sleazy tactics that are used to, to generate a return on investment and uh, um, using channels that are very difficult to get feedback from and to be lumpy upon. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think, and also the, the whole advent of technology, you know, we're seeing all of these shiny new objects coming out. we AI, machine learning, automation, I think that also exacerbates the problem because marketers want to use these technologies because it's going to make their life easier, but it's not necessarily going to be the best thing for the customer. You know, customers are going to get served with automated messages, which may not necessarily be 
uh, relevant to that customer. So I, th I think you're right. I think the, the changing times has, has kind of forced marketers into this corner or backed them into a corner where they feel this is the only way that they can do it. Um, and I am just like really happy that we're seeing people like Mark Schaefer, Seth Godin writing books now to, t to kind of address the human side because I do think it's time to get back to human again. And uh, uh, I think it's just going to be a challenge trying to balance the technology, which, which I'm not saying is bad at all because, you know, we need technology to work smarter. But I, I think that uh, the human side of marketing needs to be considered in a, in a, in a deeper way. So what, what, what's your opinion on the use of automation, machine learning, et cetera, for, for making marketing a, a better solution, I guess? Uh, I guess it, it doesn't matter to me uh, what technology you want to use uh, as long as it matters to the market and the customers, right? So it's mm -hmm. always about, and it always be, you can quote me on this, there's absolutely no problem. I can guarantee that with 100% certainty. Marketing will always be about your market and your customers and people you want to reach. So if you start with that, right, and understand why they buy from you, who influenced them, uh, and basically your job as a marketer is to influence their buying behavior. If you can do that, then yes, by any means, use the technology necessary to do that if you feel it's relevant. But do not do the opposite way. Do not try to fit technology, uh, to take a technology and try to, to solve it, to solve a problem for you if it's not the right thing. Like people are, are people. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of flaws. One of them is uh, the fear of missing out. You know, we, because we are social animals, when we see other people doing something, naturally, that's part of our DNA and our psyche. We naturally want to do the same thing because it's part of, you know, the herd, the herd mentality. It's, it's just part of who you are. You want to you wanna follow what the herd is doing or else you might be doing something wrong. So you need to fight that with every gram uh, of your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it doesn't mean that it's the right thing. You need to always go back to the customer. So AI and machine learning, if that enables you to solve customer problems faster, so one example, like beyond thousands of other use cases. For example, if you sell, I don't know, a survey analysis tool that enables you to basically um, upload a survey and, and, and within 10 minutes you get result that says, uh, exactly the key insight from this survey, and you can basically take that and take decision based on a business. Uh, 20 years ago, you'd have people actually going through this survey to get the insights. Now with machine learning uh, and, and, uh, and neural network and all of the stuff, you can basically do that via automation and just have someone to clean up what the computer told you, right? Yeah. Now, it still solves the problem from the customer's point of view, and it's even faster than before. So by all means, do that, right? But it's always coming back from what problems customers suffer from, and can you, will this technology actually help to do that? Yeah, no, absolutely. A lot of times I've seen marketers under pressure, as you mentioned before, from the top level, you know, C-suite, whatever, saying, you know, hey, there's this new technology out there. Why aren't we using it just for the sake of it? And marketers, I think, need to fight back in a way and, and say, hey, we, we don't need to be using technology for technology's sake which is exactly what you said. So do you think that part of the problem that marketers do have a bad rep? And, and when I say bad rep, I know there was a survey out recently that said that marketers come right above politicians at the bottom of the scale in terms of people's trust 
like people don't trust marketers and advertisers anymore. So would you say that the problem stems from our not being able to communicate the job of marketing to the C-suite? Because I think a lot of the times if the C-suite or the top level executive team isn't made aware of the, the, the correct strategy and the correct way of doing things, uh, it trickles down to the whole execution of, of marketing in general and, and can make it go bad. What do you think of that? Yeah, I com- completely agree. Um, me first made this mistake multiple times and I'm still not very good at it. Um, you need to understand their perspective. And again, I think as a marketer, you have two markets, really. You have the customer you want to sell to, but you also have the, your internal customers you want to sell to. And you should probably treat them the same way, which is you need to spend time talking to them. So, you know, if you, if you, if you join a, a new company, the first thing I would do uh, is I would talk to the C-suite, you know, I would ask, you know, what, what are your biggest problems? Like, what are the things that keep you up at night? What, how do you see marketing? Like what, what the marketing function here? You know, what, uh, what are you expecting out of us, etc.? So I would try to align really myself with those. But then the second thing I would do is making sure that you have the right understanding and a shared understanding of the objectives that you have as a, as a marketing team or as a marketer. And that's, I think, probably the biggest mistake that marketers do is they try to talk about campaigns and big ideas and they forget to talk about, actually, my CEO, what they want is like 10% more revenue this year. Mm-hmm. Now, talk the same language then. If they want 10% more revenue as a marketing team, how can you contribute to this goal? And if the disconnect is then, uh, if, if you change that, if you are able to really not have a disconnect anymore between those two functions, then you, the C-suite will absolutely trust marketing to do the right thing, you know. But usually that's where it comes from. That's usually the mistake I see happening all the time is, is this. And that's a mistake I've made multiple times. Not sitting down with the C-suite to truly understand what are the expectations of marketing for this company. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you. I think the alignment between the marketing team and the C-suite is is essential. And then even alignment between the marketing team and the rest of the company and making sure that right. the entire company, including sales, finance, HR, everyone is on the same page as to what marketing's goals and initiatives are. Um, and I think actually there's a book that I really love. I'm, I don't know if you've read this, Louis. It's The 12 Powers of a Marketing Leader by Thomas Barter and Patrick Barwise. It's one of my favorites. I think they express that really well in the book as to what marketing leaders need to do in order to get that alignment and uh, you know get the buy-in of the entire company. So yeah, great points. Since we've been talking about podcasts a lot, what, what is your favorite podcast to listen to? <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't listen to marketing podcasts or really? business podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I can't. I can't stick them <laughs> that much. Uh, no, there's one that I love listening to. is called uh, No Such Thing as a Fish, which is a UK podcast. And it's not about marketing whatsoever. It's just trivia. So it's uh, four, four people who come up with facts every week, new facts. So it like, could be anything from like biology, history, anything. And I like, I like cycling to work, uh, listening to those because it makes me not think of marketing. Yeah, that's great. So um, let's just do the three quick fire questions if you're up for it. Let's do it. All right. What is a guilty pleasure that you enjoy? Eating, eating food, any type of food. That's uh, from a Frenchman. I think that's uh, an expected response, right? <laughs> yes. 
yeah I, and i have a, i don't have a sweet tooth because i don't really like sugary stuff but i have a a salty tooth oh, <laughs> you yeah. yeah any any anything with any yeah any any of those awesome awesome all right something about you that people do not know or may not know uh that i i have anxiety uh that's something i i, I discovered that i had like a, a few years ago my psych my psychologist told me i had and that's something i haven't understood why i was behaving certain ways but yeah i i, I suffer from anxiety from time to time i mean i not time to time i always have anxiety but sometimes it's bigger than than others and i'm taking steps to to make sure that um I don't suffer from it that much. So I go to the gym very often now. I have a talk to therapists as much as I can uh, and I share it openly. And mm -hmm. I, that's something I'd like people to do more is talk about their mental health a bit more. There's no shame into feeling, to having like anxiety, depression and any other mental health uh, issues that you might uh, have. If you feel not okay, talk to someone. I love that. I love that. And I am a 1000% with you on that. Um, same thing here. I, I do also suffer from anxiety and, and I, I just think we're hearing so much more about it now with people talking about being burnt out at work or just feeling um, depressed because I, I, you know, and I think social media has caused this to kind of exacerbate itself, but um, that's just a whole nother podcast, but yeah, definitely with you on that. <laughs> um, and final question, if you were not currently doing what you're doing, what would you be doing as a profession? Well, as I said at the start, I'd probably build, I'd probably be selling wind turbines or doing something like that. But honestly, I don't think I'll be. I don't think I can't see myself doing anything else. Sure. I really don't. Yeah, that's a good answer. Awesome. Well, I think we are coming to the end of this podcast, but I want to thank you once again, Louis, for being with me here and. Um, I just it's been a blast for me and uh let's keep in touch yeah thank you and i want to repeat something i said at the start thanks for doing what you're doing it's not easy to start something new like you're doing and interview people it's not an easy task so thanks for doing it and keep doing it uh thank you where can people reach you and contact you connect with you if they want to learn more about what you're doing Sure. You can, you can check hotjar.com. That's the company I work for. That's H-O-T-J-A-R. Uh, if you want to contact me about Hotjar stuff, it's Louis at hotjar.com, L-O-U-I-S uh, at hotjar.com. Uh, if uh, you want to check out my podcast, Everyone Hates Marketers, you can just Google that. And the email is on the website. Perfect. Thank you so much, Louis. Take care. You're very welcome. Well, that's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did like what you heard, please subscribe to catch more episodes and I'd really appreciate it if you left me a review and shared with your friends and colleagues. Visit my website at virashafiq.com, connect with me on LinkedIn or send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time.